I would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Brianna Reese, and I'm the student coordinator of the Roundtables. Today, our host is Phil Gibbon, an adjunct history professor here at Philadelphia University. And our topic today is the rise of Donald Trump in Trumpism. How are you doing? I'm Phil Gibbon, adjunct professor of history. I teach human rights, world politics, and contemporary perspectives. Uh, and we'll introduce ourselves around the center. I'm uh, Josh Smicker. I'm a visiting assistant professor of communication. I'm also the UNM director of the communication program. Uh, I do work on media technology studies and, in particular, media politics. So I think we'll have a lot to say in terms of this talk. I'm Henry Gitter. I'm an adjunct professor of history as well. I teach debating on U.S. issues and various classes in the World Society program. I'm John Devoti. I am also an adjunct professor of history, and I also teach debating U.S. issues. I'm John. I'm a third year line of society student. I'm Evan. I won't give my last name. Sorry <laughs> <laughs> the surveillance round there. Not for anyone might be listening. Thank you. My name is Maria. I'm a third year student. I'm a marketing major with a minor in law and society. My name is Bianca. I'm a second year law and society major. My name is Shane. I'm a fourth year industrial design student. Okay, uh, to get started, I just want to kind of race through a couple of sort of anecdotes that set the context of where this came from as an idea, and then I'd like to open the floor. Uh, what I'm really interested in here is how we make sense of Donald Trump. Okay, he's really made uh, uh, quite a splash, obviously, in the 26, 2016 presidential campaign. How do we make sense of this guy is really what I'm interested in. So, but how did I come to, to, to want to look at this? I'm not an expert in, in Trump or Trumpism. I'm not uh, a historian of American politics. I'm a historian of American foreign relations. Nonetheless, there's a couple of things that, that caught my interest. One is in the winter of 2015, I had, it was, I guess, December of 2015, towards the end of the fall semester, I had asked a question about Trump in my class, one of my classes. And I got a response from a student that was the following, and I wrote it down, and I'd like to quote that response. And this student said to me after I asked this question, the question had to do with, I think in the news at the time, Donald Trump had made his pronouncement to ban all Muslims from coming into the country. Anyway, so the, there was a student who responded immediately, and she said to me, quote, we all know that Donald Trump is crazy, and that his supporters are just stupid. So why are we wasting our time bothering to even take this guy seriously? So I, while I found the pushback from the student really terrific, um, I also found the, the, sort of the statement sort of interesting. Um, and the terms kind of misguided in some ways, uh, inappropriate in some ways. Um, so I got the, you know, the sense that, yeah, to, there's something to the notion that taking him seriously, the man and the movement seriously, gives a platform to what many of us may disagree with or find abhorrent, right? But what I also thought was that, sort of simultaneous to that, is that we kind of target him, ridicule him, make fun of him, and dismiss him way too quickly. And we do that at our peril. So if we don't pay attention, maybe it's not so much about Donald Trump, and maybe my focus will actually move from the man to the movement, because that might be more relevant. But that's sort of, view, sort of how, it, how it originated. Relatedly, to that dismissive idea, right, that dis our dismissiveness of Trump, in uh, the summer of last year, in the summer of 2015, in uh, June of 2015, the Huffington Post decided to move all of its coverage of Donald Trump from the politics section of the Huffington Post to the entertainment section of the Huffington Post. And then that quickly changed in December, early December of 2015, when he made his pronouncements about banning Muslims from the country. So I thought that was a good example and a prominent one of dismissiveness coming back to, and, and, and biting us in the rear end. Um, also, interestingly enough about the Huffington Post, uh, is that now if you look, 
any article about Donald Trump in the Huffington Post, on the Huffington Post site, ends with an editor's note that says the following, which I think is both unprecedented, but also simultaneously shows kind of, now we take the guy seriously. And so every, every article that mentions Trump says this, Donald Trump regularly incites political violence and is a serial liar, rampant xenophobe, racist, misogynist, and birther who has repeatedly pledged to ban all Muslims, 1.6 billion members of an entire religion from entering the US. So we get this quick pendulum swing from dismissive to the entertainment section, back to the politics section, and every single article about the guy is noted with that editorial note, which is probably unprecedented. The other thing that I want to mention is the sort of the, the, the subtitle to our roundtable, and that's, um, you know, uh, th there was a meme in late, in sort of mid-2015 into 2016 uh, on the internet that compared Donald Trump to a turtle on a fence post, which I found entertaining and also somewhat insightful but it only got us to the point where we kind of scratch our heads and say, it doesn't make any sense. So the, the meme asked that question, right? What does Donald Trump and a turtle on a fence post have in common? And so there were some interesting responses, right? You can begin to think about, um, you know, well, what I see doesn't make sense. How did he even get there? Right? Then you begin to wonder, well, now that he's there, does he know what to do, right? Then you can start to think, you know, something like, who thought this was a good idea in the first place? Uh, and then you can, you know, it sort of becomes obvious that, you know, the comparison becomes, well, now Trump, turtle, on fence post, has been elevated way beyond their capabilities to perform or do much of anything. So, but while that was also entertaining and provides some insight, it still doesn't really get us beyond scratching our heads and kind of saying, what I see, what I hear doesn't make sense, right? So that's what I want this round table to do, is kind of begin to question and take him seriously, because I think we should. And if not the man, then certainly the movement, Trumpism, uh, and, and, uh, and, and try to make some sense out of what's going on. Where did it come from? Where's it going? Um, because I can pretty much guarantee that even, you know, regardless of whether the man is elected or not, he's eventually going to disappear from the scene. But Trumpism itself is probably far more long-lasting, and certainly its consequences make it. So that's sort of my starting point in where this came from. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm curious about how students or my fellow faculty, colleagues, uh, sort of make sense of this guy and talk about him, et cetera, et cetera. So we can you know, have some input regarding that. Um, if Josh or Henry want to make some quick comments about where they might uh, want to take the conversation, we can, we can start that way as well. But that's sort of how, how I came to it and why I'm interested in, 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 in it and why it's significant. Plus, we've got the debates on Monday, um, which will put all of this very much on display. And then we go to the polls in 47 days. So, you know, the, the second we thought this may be just the theater of the absurd um, is actually getting really real. So. I'll, I'll keep my comments brief for now. Um, because I'm, So I'm Josh. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I think that there is, and I guess for me, I less surprised by Trump. I sort of see Trump as a tail end of a much longer phenomenon as opposed to the beginning or emergence of a newer one. I mean, I'm sure that you will probably have more to speak to on this, uh, being historians, but I mean, I think that's what Trump is a, it's a sort of culmination of the backlash politics that began really in the 60s and 70s, sort of solidified in the 80s and 90s, and the just of uh, the culture wars, and then sort of recrystallized around the backlash to Obama. Um, so I think that the broader structure is something that I think is tremendously important and hopefully we will talk about. Um, I guess from a communication standpoint, though, I'm really interested in Trump as a media phenomenon. And I think that he really sort of points to a, a few key elements. And I think he's been tremendously savvy about exploiting um, a, a number of them. I wonder 
I don't know if I would agree with your assertion, but I think he's going to disappear so so quickly. I think he's shown that he has found ways to sort of continually reemerge um, over several decades at this point. And I think that it both sort of a, he's really good at exploiting certain weaknesses and current journalistic standards, everything from sort of like false equivalence reporting, uh, sort of assumption of objectivity, no matter what you're reporting on, to simply the economic structures of contemporary journalism. Trump is excellent clickbait, so he's really he's clickable. He sort of feeds into these things. I think he feeds into a sort of reality TV culture that's based on celebrity and pseudo democracy. I think he has done a wonderful job of using Twitter, just like we have some other presidential candidates that were articulated to emergent media of the moment. So FDR and radio, JFK and television, uh, uh, Clinton and the internet, Obama and Facebook. Trump is going to be the first Twitter candidate. And we can talk a little bit about what that means. And he's also been tremendously, tremendously good at mobilizing other internet communities. There are sort of this whole sort of series of subcultures that Trump has managed to tap into, everything from sort of hardcore white supremacists to men's rights advocates to gamer gators to red pillars. He's sort of been a unifying force in a sort of dispersed series of online media communities and sort of actively giving, literally giving them voice in a number of his platforms and mainstreaming a lot of these ideas. Um, and I think that these are all very interesting phenomena. So I'm curious to hear what the rest of you have to say about this. This is Henry. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been asked this question uh, a bunch of times, and so I've been you know, thinking about how to put Trump into a kind of longer history. And uh, one of the kind of words I keep coming back to when thinking about this question is um, realignment, political realignment, and that you know, um, political scientists in this world kind of identify um, that America is kind of either in a fifth or sixth political party system right now. Um, what that means is, is that um, the, the, the dialogue between the two major parties has shifted significantly five or six times in American history. And so the question then becomes is how do we know the difference in, you know, between each um, party structure? Um, and some of them are because of major events, some of them are they coalesce around a figure, you know? And so um, Trump, I think, is one of the figure types. And so I'm putting him in this dialogue with, you know, or putting him in the stream with like, people like Andrew Jackson, who, who the, the rise of the Democratic Party in the 1830s around this visage of what he represents, um, or William Jennings Bryan for the, for the Democrats again around 1900, 1890, 1900, um, or George Wallace in 1968. The, you know, these guys who come to represent, sort of build up strains um, in, in, in political society um, looking for a release point. Um, and, and these become the kind of figures. Um, and, and, and in comparison to that, I really, you know, I, I, I want to throw this out for people who want to have the, the strain is kind of putting Trump and William Jennings Bryan into a conversation together here. Because in some ways they're both populist. They're both kind of appealing to um, a sort of grassroots backlash. I think that's the, the right word here. Um, and I, that's why George Wallace might also play <coughs> George Wallace, although he's the last kind of gasp effort for the segregationist movement, and the Democrats kind of deal with that. Um, the, some of that moves into the neoconservative movement, which is what I think we're on the tail end of. That's why I think this may be a realignment moment, however this goes either way. Um, because in both, or both are still a backlash against FDR and the New Deal in some ways, and that's the kind of longer story here. Um, but I don't think George Wallace is appropriate um, directly in that sense. Um, but where William James Bryan is, because when he runs for, for president in 1896 and loses it, um, but who is he? he? He's a guy who is fighting this platform on the, the, the metal basis of currency. And the question is, why, why do we really care about the metal basis of currency? Because the real issue was, you know, America was transitioning from a system that was supposed to promote agriculture everybody owns a piece of land um, and that's the way to true liberty or are we going to embrace this industrialism but that requires the kind of work you know the, the labor workforce um, and some people are going to gain and some people are going to lose and the Democrats have to deal with that first and, and Jennings Bryan really comes as this grassroots guy who is trying to strike out at the moneyed interest and he really is rallying up those those facets and it's in, in that context um, it's a battle in the Democratic Party between a kind of conservative 
um, 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 capitalism versus uh, a, a, a burgeoning socialism. Um, and while the Democratic Party has always been quite successful at trying to keep the harshest elements of socialism out, that, you know, he becomes a figure that tries to promote that. that but we know how socialism kind of develops in societies. It's, you know, it comes from worker action, um, has violent streaks, you know, in that decade you had Haymarket Square, for example, where there's, you know, literally soldiers firing on striking workers, um, and, and he became their champion. He gives a famous speech called the Cross of Gold speech, um, which is about the evils of the gold standard. But the whole point was that he, after he gives that speech, he kind of hangs himself like Jesus does the Jesus pose, saying, because really the, the message was is that we're at the mercy of these, 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 these establishment financiers. And I think that's, Trump is speaking in that language in somewhat. You know, is he inside the establishment? Is he outside the establishment? He firmly sees himself outside of it. But he's definitely rallying a spirit of people who think there's a disconnection, that the system is kind of stacked against them. But this populist stream, too, that something is being lost. So for Jennings Bryant, you know, this was a transition from, you know, this kind of agricultural-based politics to what industrial-based politics is. And then when we see in the years after that, that's going to be something that divides the Republican Party up and through the 1932 election. Um, so, um, but to me, Trump is not new. Um, the sentiments aren't new. Um, we just haven't seen them in a very long time in quite this way. And so, you know, I definitely take the longer kind of view on this. Thoughts on the students? Want to comment? <coughs> I'll take the moment then. Uh, this is a, I think there's a fantasy and a myth of what America is. And I think there's a reality to America. It's a fantasy that we're a tolerant, freedom-loving nation. But if we study our history, uh, we didn't let black people play baseball until 1950. Um, our history of slavery. Women weren't allowed to vote for how long. Our history is of racism and hate. That's who we are. And when we act differently, it's a surprise. We're the country that locked up 120,000 uh, Japanese for absolutely no reason in World War II, based on lies. But yet, we go around talking about freedom. The myth is freedom, <coughs> the fantasy is freedom, the reality is segregation, misogynation, um, and hatred and anti-Semitism. That's what this country truly is. Donald Trump is presenting, to me, what America really is. We've thrown off the, they talk about um, political correctness. Because that's where everyone went in and kept quiet about just how hateful and awful they are. Because they were rejected by society by some of us who happened to be decent. But now, because the internet allows them to get together and discuss their indecencies with each other and feel better about it, they have their man who's out there speaking for the true America, the true racist, hating, stupid, America, and I say stupid, <laughs> not in the, that way, I'm saying it in anti-intellectual America. The America that looks at experts and says, what do they know? I actually, it's going around the internet, uh, someone from The Daily Show went and interviewed a lot of these Trump supporters and asked some questions, and when he said to them, what proof do you have? Their answer is always, well, I feel it. It's my opinion. Did you read anything? No, and it's almost they have an attitude that reading is wrong that it's intellectual and you eggheads and so forth. So there's an anti-intellectualism is also in America, along with those lovely things that I've mentioned already. So I think the myth is disappearing. I think finally the, the, the curtains are open and the real America's ugly face is showing and that's who we are and that face is Donald Trump. Just want to let out any of my, any of my students sitting in here. I, I am Philip Gibbon, and that's what I'm saying. <laughs> At least my, uh, I just want to echo the piece about anti-intellectualism. Many of my students sitting in here, that's been incorporated into stuff we've talked about, not necessarily specific to Trump, but we know what that means. Um, and actually, as, as sort of a, a set of factors or things to think about when trying to explain what's going on with this guy, I put that up there as, as close to number one as an analytical tool to understand who we, like why Trump, why now? Um, you know, as has been mentioned, this can be, it, it's deeply historically rooted. Anti-intellectualism is for sure. 
um, and, and uh, it, it's it's so it's prominent. It's you know it's sort of ingrained in the socio-cultural and political fabric of the country. Um, it, so so, but Trump has been doing Trump stuff for a very long time. So why not? Right, so and, and a historian like uh, Jill Lepore from Harvard, I think she's from Harvard, has written about this and reminded me about quite quite a bit of this. We saw him surface in '84, in '87 and '88, in in '99, 2000, in 2011 and 2012, and it didn't stick. I mean, the guy is not new; um, he's incredibly consistent. So why didn't it stick then? But sticks now. What's that? He's not consistent. Oh, he's incredibly consistent. Uh, he's almost formulaic, actually. Um, not in policy. Maybe not that's what I mean. Be, yeah, behavior. Uh, yeah, in behavior. Right. You know, actually, there's probably something to the inconsistent randomness of, of, of his policies. But in terms of, of, of sort of who he is, how he behaves, um, the mannerisms, all of that, you know, he's incredibly consistent, almost formulaic, which feeds into sort of this reality TV moment as well. What do you guys think? Why now? Okay, this is Maria speaking. Uh, so, based on what you were saying to me, that's very disheartening because that's not the America my parents wanted to move for for their children. And that kind of brings me kind of like emotional because that's in 2008 when we did the lottery system and we moved here. That was not how my parents like thought this was gonna be. You know, the, as an outsider, as an immigrant, we see America like on top of everything and so intellectual and all these things. So this is very disheartening to see this, let's call him a man for lack of a better word, to, to just come in and really just shatter all that. But then because I'm an immigrant and I don't exactly, I mean, not know the backstory, obviously I've learned it in school since I've been here. You know, he's kind of like really showing the true colors of what what really has been going on for all these years since, you know, America's been created. So it's kind of very disheartening to see, like, as an immigrant, and I guess it could be the media, you know, you could really present the best of yourself. So obviously what I could have, you know, experienced, you know, in the news in Greece <coughs> or Albania, it was obviously very different than what, we're, what I'm seeing here. So it's obviously the best version and then once you start pulling, it, it just shatters you. And it's not, and now living here is definitely not the same as to the perspective I had back in 2008 before I moved here. Then again, I was very much younger, but I mean, I see my parents and they see that, you know, things have changed and they're not, the promise that it was once, it's not the same thing. That American dream, it's just, Living here is a lot different than the American dream people think while you're abroad. I have a comment. Okay, my name is Joel Adler. I'm an adjunct faculty as well in the Stanford Strategic Leadership Program, which is a new program. You can always go there when you're about six or seven years older than you are now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm here because I didn't know about this assembly before today. Uh, I'm a Holocaust survivor. I want to make a couple of comments which you discussed. I think to me, Donald Trump historically has an analogy much, much closer to home, which is the one that I lived through. Hitler did it exactly the same way. He first appealed to the worser instincts of people, particularly those who had been feel abused and maybe rightfully abused by the changes in society. In that instance, it was World War I, those people who were intellectual survived on their wits, many of them Jews, a lot of working class people got screwed, and that's what he appealed to initially. And it didn't matter who the other was, he chose gypsies or Jews or whoever was, he was opposed to, they were next in line, okay? So the fascist model is the closest one I can think of, think of as opposed to these variations of people appealing to the worser instincts of people. It may have started with Jackson or David, William Jennings Bryan, but we have one right before you that you actually have one person who lived through it right here. So the message I wanted to give to everybody here is we need to mobilize 
to make sure this like, guy doesn't get voted, voted for. So all of you students, the best thing you can do is talk to your, your, your peer students, get them to register and vote against this person. So you can break all that person. To your point and to your point, I really think there are inner demons within all of us. If you take a psychodynamic view of the forces that really drive you, you'll find that at some levels you were against equal opportunity legislation because the relative seemed to have not gotten a job because of preference. I've heard, <laughs> I've heard similar arguments from friends working in the same organization who say, I'm going to be discriminated because I'm white. And another one said, I'm going to be discriminated against I'm black. The two can possibly be true at the same time. Okay? My impression of that organization is they don't care to discriminate against any, any particular group. They'll discriminate against anyone. Okay, so that's, that's been my conclusion. So you should not despair because in, under normal circumstances, you get unfair behavior, which is sort of universally dispersed. Okay? It can appear anywhere. It just takes a person like Trump to create scapegoat communities in order to channel that for their own purposes. Hitler did it for his own egomaniacal purposes. Trump is doing it for his own narcissistic impulses, which I'm sure he inherited from his family, and he's given to his kids. There was just recently an article in the New York Times describing his kids as being affected by the same trauma that they, that they experienced when, when their families broke up for divorce. And they have this doggy dog mentality with no, no mercy and no empathy for anyone in this world. So you've got a family here who's learned to experience through generations to be exactly who they are. So my message is just <laughs> get your friends to vote against this because you and my grandchildren who are your your age will suffer if Trump and Trumpism keeps going. Exactly. I made the point about trying to hear a little bit more from the students. I mean, do you, is that sort of how you have been reading and experiencing Trump? Do you sort of see him as a, a world historical threat? Do you sort of see him as a buffoon? Do you know people who support <coughs> Trump? And so why? Like, I guess I think that we have our of our own perspectives and our own histories. Um, how, how, how has it been getting talked about? How is it circulating? What sort of narratives are you telling each other in your own circles? I, I disagree with like what you and her and he said as well. I don't think what Trump is like presenting is good for anyone really. And it's like disappointing when I see like my friends support him. Yeah, that's what Um. What I found interesting about most people, oh, beyond speaking, what I found interesting about most people in my social circles coming from a very liberal city um, is that at first the campaign almost seemed comical. When he first announced it, we brushed it off as something of a joke, not to be dismissive of him and disrespectful, but that's how it seemed at first. Um, it wasn't something that was serious until we actually saw people following his policies. And you know, be, myself, I didn't want to go off what I just saw off the media because obviously it's always biased, it's always screwed up. So they were giving these different points and I wanted to see what his points were. So I went online and I looked, this was a while back, I can't remember every point, but I remember some of them seemed, you know, politically correct. Most, some, not most. Then I looked and I watched some of his actual talks and it was a complete 180. His racist remarks, sexist remarks, none of that were in any of his speeches online. So I just thought it was a little different, the whole 180. And then I see all these supporters, people I have on my social media accounts, following him and spewing the same nonsense that I've heard at all his speeches. So it's not, and it's not much comical anymore because now we're about to vote when he's steadily progressing in this race. So I find it a little troubling. Yeah, sorry. Hi, um, I'm going to buy here from my friend. Um, I literally have people back home calling me, asking me what is going on in America. They <laughs> <laughs> just left the EU and were more worried about Trump being president than not finding a job. 
I was just chilling at home. He told me what to talk about trauma. I was like, I need to tell my friend. I need to give him an answer. And the thing, um, which is quite interesting, you're asking why now, and you said something very, very interesting. Um, from an outside view, come to America, the American dream is what you said, unfortunately. It is a racist, horrible, but the people here within them are different. So when people ask me what's going on with Trump, I don't have an answer. I'm with uh, people every day that are very liberal, educated, and um, for some reason, he's still there. Of how many candidates in the Republican Party, he survived. So someone has to be voting for him, and someone has to be supporting. Like you said, he's the voice for those people that are free to stand and say something openly that I don't like sound like that. But behind those doors, they do feel that way. He gave that great, come on, eight years, you have a black president. Frustration is happening in history and history. Politics and politicians don't care about facts or alleged. They, they care about emotions and they play it. That's how we get votes. We use hate, love, whatever the message is, it's emotionally done. Frustration, the liberal way that America is right now, it has to go to the extreme, whether you like it or not. It happens, it happens all the time. In England, it's happened before Boris Johnson, while the very liberal London. If you, if you look at Boris Johnson and look at um, Donald Trump, you're not too far off. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you're not too far off. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm happy to be here one. Of, um, I'm happy to hear your opinion too. And uh, I'm happy that you know something that you guys can really understand and relate to. Because people in the world don't know what's going on in the most powerful country in the world. And a lot of people, I'm not a political person, because in London, you can vote for president tomorrow and we don't care. But a lot of young people are like, to hell with Donald Trump and that. Bernie Sanders, why? I can tell you that all my friends in university, I know two people that voted. We don't have no right to slander or talk crap about anyone if you didn't vote. I know two people that voted. You just gave those few people that are angry and frustrated in your country the right to give you a bad name internationally. It's very important you know this is what is going on around the world. People are confused. They're truly confused. I'm confused. I live and I'm confused. <laughs> Actually, a really good point. And I think the connection to Brexit is sort of very apropos. Because I think that there is this sort of sense that Donald Trump, at least in the way that I read him, is simultaneously both very unreal and very real at the same time. And in some ways, his unreality allows people to sort of see him as a figurehead of the group. What I mean by that is precisely because Donald Trump sort of seemed like such an impossibility, as, you were, as we talked about at the very beginning, that literally nobody was taking him seriously, either in the Republican Party, in the media, that everybody sort of saw him as a joke. Right. So he, he was such, he was so unreal, it was so obvious that Trump will never become president that you can sort of ignore him, we can all laugh at him, we can make funny memes about him, we can sort of put fun of him on The Daily Show, et cetera, et cetera. Move him so, to the entertainment so, yeah. section. Yeah. So, so he's deeply unreal, but at the same time, because of that, he is both, his unreality is what makes him more real, right? At least he's being honest, right? He is, he's more, his unreal, he, all, all politicians are real. It's all in that, it's all a performance, and the way that he is so upfront about that, the fact that he's already been on a reality show, the fact that we all know that he's a celebrity, the fact that we all know all these things about him, makes that sort of sense of illusion and spectacle seem even more real. And the fact, and then I think it plays exactly into what you're talking about, which is that he is, he's become like essentially a, a mouthpiece for us. Like he, he's the one that's saying what we're all really thinking, right? He, he's the one saying what we wish we could say in all these different settings. So there's this really weird tension between the unreality and the reality, and then it's sort of, you let it go until it's too late. So just like how you have the, the Brexit vote, where, where nobody thought Brexit was going to happen. No. Until it happened, including, including people who voted for it, right? They, they thought they could vote for it because, of course, it would never happen. And I think like that sense of this combination of the being tremendously authentic, while at the same time essentially being a, a, a spectacle, and a symbol, Trump as a weird Trump co-opted and then tweeted about Brexit too. They're going to call me Mr. Brexit. Yeah. Call me Mr. Franksen. Yeah. And then, you know, people couldn't figure out what the heck that meant. <laughs> and then what you just said is essentially what that Here's the scariest thing. Because yeah. after the debates, he would say, well, I got good ratings. I really That's don't know. 
I really don't know if he is in a state of schizophrenic delusion where he thinks, I'm not kidding, where he thinks he's in a reality show. Because he's always referring to ratings and reaction. I don't know if he is a racist or holds any opinion that he gives. He has given remarks that are, he has said in his moments of honesty. He says, when I get boring, I'll throw out the wall and they all get crazy and everyone. So I think he's doing, because he understands his audience and he just wants applause. He wants ratings. The show must have ratings. And he will say anything to play to the, the people. Whether he believes any of that, we'll never know. Because he'll always be playing in this reality show. He thinks he's in a movie. And he is playing the part of the president. Mm. And he'll do and say anything. That's why I want to say about these debates. I cannot watch them because he doesn't have any integrity because he's not in reality. Anyone would have, any human being in this room hopefully has integrity within them not to lie so blatantly because within us we know it's wrong. But for him, since he's not in reality, he will say anything in that debate. And Hillary will come off flamux because she never would meet another human being like this that will, you always depend when you're dealing with people that there'll be some element of integrity and reality to them. But what you're saying is right, he's in a show. So he can say anything. And the show matters. So he's always, he's constantly bragging about his rallies. Right. Right. So when you read a speech, you know, um, it, you know, if you read something online, if you re anything that's scripted, you know, you may be able to even take half seriously. But that's not what's that's not what his supporters tap into. Actually, the second he goes scripted, right, in in his in, if he's before the press or if he's at a rally, is the second those people start to yawn. So then right, the wall. because because it's yeah, and because that immediately attaches to uh, those nativistic and popular, you know, populist uh, sort of aspects to Trumpism that are historically rooted, right? That Henry got us towards and into the 20th century, and those kinds of of uh, you know throwing the red meat into the tiger's cage is what they're going to respond to. They immediately shut down if the guy goes scripted. And so there's these constant comparisons that, look, Hillary Clinton's rallies are so boring. She's just, it's scripted. We're talking about, you know, policy. Well thought out policies and details, and that just is, it doesn't matter. Can we go back to politics being boring? Because <laughs> I remember I did not want to watch the news because I found them boring. And now they're entertaining, and it's like, watching the Kardashians, but politics version. Yeah, I, I don't know. To support your point, there was a story out that Trump was willing to delegate all policymaking activities to the case. The truth, I think the dimension of truth came out of it. I don't give a damn about policy or intellectual foundations of anything that deals with it. You take care of it. I know you can take care of it. I'll be the showman. I think that was an element of of truth about his true instincts about the situation. So I'm not sure he's really except has any real convictions about being a racist or being a populist or being he has none, zero. <laughs> but but he'll be that way. He'll be racist and, and pop and, and populist and nativist and nationalistic and all of that when it suits his purposes. But yeah, whether he whether he actually believes it or even understands what's going on, he knows he's, he's, he's not he's not he may be ignorant, but he's not stupid. He's not stupid. <laughs> right? He, so he played those cards early in the game. He locked down all the deplorables, at least people who could be swayed to be deplorables. Now he's got them locked in. Then he made a show of reaching over to more civilized components of the populace, which is his latest latest foray. I'm not sure whether that's just dying yet. John has said this. Yeah, John, yeah. I just, I had an entire, like, two pages written down about immigration, his policies and everything, and I was sitting and like, thinking about it prior to this. And then uh, we came in and everything proceeded, and I hear his story, a uh, survivor from the Holocaust, and he tells us that this is an exact replication 
of what Hitler has done, and the conversation continues on around it, and it's not that, you know, the conversation has to go on, we're here for so long after, but is that, is it too late that we're not actually hearing this, the conversation goes on around this, and we're not paying attention to the fact that a survivor is here telling us it's literally a replication of what has already happened in our past, and yet there won't be changes made. Um, this is Colin. Um, to the question of if it's too late, I would say that yeah, it's probably too late, regardless of whether or not Donald Trump you know, becomes president, because you can see around the world, it seems like the world is preparing for a Trump presidency, regardless of if it happens. Um, in the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte was called the Donald Trump candidate um, against a female a presidential candidate that was much like Hillary. He recently called Obama son of a whore when he was supposed to come to the country. Um, he's very populist. Um, and when you go to a place like Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, the first female president, has just been ousted from Brazil. And a conservative party is now in power in Congress and in power in the, um, in the presidency. So when you look around the world, we have a new conservative faction that's nationalist, that likes Donald Trump, that is mirroring Donald Trump, and um, those political factions are already established. They're already like voted into power. So we do have to deal with the consequences regardless of whether it <coughs> happens here. You know, we've created an international, an inter international atmosphere that's very nationalistic. But to be fair, I mean, those trends happen before Trump even gets elected. I mean, the major question that really surrounds this is, is, is Trump a, a, a reality of anti-globalism? And that, you know, um, we're really at a crossroads internationally whether globalization is a good thing or a bad thing. I think from a market perspective, most people want to think it's a good thing. It, it allows that diffusion of goods. But the kind of blowback to globalization also is, is that we want to bring in the world's products, but do we want the world to come to us and us to go to other parts of the world? And I think the rise of conservative elements in many countries is the sense that people want, or communities or countries want to start to, want to, start to think that it's okay to think of themselves again and not their place in the globalized world. Not all of them, but that's where I think this trend is going. You know, because in some ways, and as we brought up Britain, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull something obscure out of, out of the hat here, because it's something I'd like to look at British history as kind of a precursor of American history. Um, is that in some ways we're playing the politics now of, of the threat of the end of hegemony. Um, especially with things like deindustrialization. You know, in some ways the working class has been left behind. We basically said to them, Go get new skills, go and go get new jobs. But they had good paying jobs when you know we were a more industrialized country. So you've left them behind. Um, the you know when we were an industrial power, there was wealth coming into the country. There was power and prestige that came along with that. Um, and now you're seeing that kind of be subverted in our minds to people like China and other places. I think that's why Trump's you know rhetoric on international trade, for example is one rooted in, we gotta make, bring the wealth back here and, and make ourselves great again. That's why you know, he means by that. Um, and the only way to do that is, is we gotta think of American interests first, but it's a very anti-global message. But to go back to some of the things that people say, I, I go back to the 1983 general election in Great Britain, because so we were talking about, he trumps up how many people are coming out to his, 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 um, um, his rallies. You know, it's almost like Michael Foote did in those elections where he, you know, his pollsters were coming to him and saying, look, the message isn't resonating. You're losing two to one in the polls. And he goes, you're crazy. I had 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 people show up to my rally because Michael Foote wanted to believe that Britain still believed in the old labor ideology. Um, and what happened was, was that that old labor ideology gets trounced. And Margaret Thatcher comes out of the 1983 election with, a, with an armor plate. And then what does the Labor Party do? It begins the process of forming into new labor under Tony Blair 10 years later. But it's a new labor that has embraced a lot of the principles of Thatcherism. What was Thatcherism about? Make Britain great again um, by 
<laughs> but you know what I mean. It's about going back, you know, taking it out of the hands of the state. But then, you know, we got to be careful of the rest of the world. And Europe is something to be afraid of. You know, your skepticism begins with Margaret Thatcher. Yes. You know, and so. Um, but also some deeply affect globalization. And I think like this is, I think, more than sort of anti-globalization. I think it might be a sort of selective globalization, right? Because well, yeah. like, look, like looking at Britain now, like right after Brexit, I mean, Britain, was, of course, we're going to stay part of the European common market. Of course, we're going to sort of stay in all of these global like, structures. You like useful. globalization when you control the mechanisms and you get to reap the benefits. When the messages start to kind of fall upon you, which is people want to come to your country, because that's kind of what happened in the nineteen sixties. Suddenly, when everybody from the Caribbean wanted to come, what do you got to do? Oh, we got to change the immigration laws, which they did three times in twenty years it, until they got the British Nationality Act. They wouldn't even let people from the Commonwealth come in that easily. Which I think speaks more to racism than anti-globalization. Well, no, there is a practical side of that. Britain originally allowed, you know, through law pretty much invited 800 million people to come to its country. And when people actually started coming, they went, oh, sh you know, we got this. This is all the Lord of the Empire. But if you take Thatcherism, you know, in some ways, some people usually put Reaganism, but I think it's different than that. But with Thatcherism, it was this idea that Britain, Britain got too much muddled with what was going on in the rest of the world. And it wasn't in control anymore. And when you're not in control, then you worry about what you have left. And I see that attitude permeating in some ways, that America has lost its place. And people kind of view that, you know, um, everybody doesn't want to, everybody doesn't have a good paying job anymore. Um, but there's not enough jobs to kind of come up and down the, the line. Um, and in some ways, Trump is, and I think that's why in some ways we look at it, other people look at it as empty promises. He says, I'm just gonna make America great again. And some of people just want somebody who says that. And here's a guy who's been in business. That's right. That's authoritarianism, right? That's well, you want somebody that's going to that's, that's going to address your concerns with force, make it short, simple, and well. Let's be know. careful here, because what does force mean? One force Forcefully, is fully. Yeah, but now, do you do it with the corrosive effects of military, or is forceful meaning that we're going to push this agenda? Because they could be two separate things. Now, our system doesn't allow for the latter as easily. You know, one of the things about the presidency is, is that what power does it have? You know, any president of county can make promises. Walk in the first day and say to Congress, I would like you to address these bills, and what can Congress say? They could just say no. Yeah, but it would be a Republican Congress and a Republican That's, Supreme Court. We'll see how that happens. Exactly. A Supreme action, Court with possibly four appointees by this man. I don't have the faith that you have. I, I have seen too many times in history, we go, oh, the American system will be fine. I don't think we're going to be fine. I think the, I think the, the elements are there with a, with a corrupt Supreme Court already, Secor versus Bush, and, and a get rid, get rid of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a bunch of other liberals you have on the court who are hand-selected by Trump. And who's going to stop him? But the question Who is going to stop you. If we go to the former, you have to ask this question: Will we, as people, allow that to happen? Yes. Do you think we the just allowed it to happen? But would you allow the military? Do you think the military would just kind of? Why he is different than every other country in the history of man? That all of a sudden our military is going to stand up? Oh no! You'll see how quickly when job when he gets rid of generals and puts his own people in, how quickly the military turns. We are not safe here. If you think we're safe for one moment, then uh, hopefully, and I don't want to see it, I, I, there's one percent of me that wants to see it happen, to give the people what they deserve, one percent of me, that's all. But I really do believe that you cannot sit in this room and say to me that we're safe. That we are safe because in there, because if he but gets I'm in, not swinging the other way and it, saying it's going to be uh, But I think even beyond the military, Even the military, it is these sort of vigilante forms of violence that you already see encouraged at, at Trump rallies. I think the normalization of violence. But remember, what's what is the work is kind of raised on detra for all this? They want to fight drug crime, which does permeate no matter what side of the spectrum you are on. It's like, yes, Trump, it's it's like Trump wants to fight drug crime no, in, in the Mexican there is a sort of a very racialized. Just to show, stop and frisk ruled unconstitutional by the New York Supreme Court, hardly a bastion of liberalism, ruled it is a unconstitutional profile 
because they happen to be stopping a huge majority of black people, just coincidentally. He wants to, not caring that the Supreme Court has already spoken in the state where it was put in, he wants to do it nationally. But then and then all of a sudden you see all the lemmings are going, hey, that's a good idea. And suddenly we have national stop and frisk. Who's going to stop that? The same people who would you take? Would you take up arms against that if that happened? Would I take up arms yes. against it while I'm being recorded? No. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. There's two things on that. The New York Supreme Court well, unconstitutional according to the New York State Constitution, not within the terms of the federal constitution. So from a legalistic standpoint, there is that difference to begin with, which is why it can apply there, but not apply elsewhere. I'm not saying that doesn't say that that's with Donald Trump. Well, what authority does Congress even have to impose such a policy? If we work within the rules, no. Sure we can. But have we given up the rules before? Zero times. Ask the people in Gitmo. What happened to due process there? What happened to habeas corpus there? It disappeared because George W. Bush, in a time of fear, said, I'm the one who could actually arrest. He actually said that. Thank God the Supreme Court in Brazil said the President of the United States does not have arrest power. But before that, the President of the United yes, States was arresting people and putting them in jail for the longest time. But we had a Supreme Court. Take away that Supreme Court in Brazil, and what do you got? A President with the power to arrest. Yes. However, you also have to remember that you know when we talk about constitutional rights, and I, 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 I am also a believer in the insular cases principle, although it wasn't applied in that case, which is the Constitution should carry the flag. So I, I do want to state that out there. But at the same time, habeas corpus, even in the in the Anglo-American legal tradition, is only open to those who are citizens. The issue in the Gitmo cases was non-citizens. Now, I would say it's a human rights violation one way or the other, and we have signed on the many conventions of that. But we have to be very careful when we talk about constitutional rights versus, in some ways, what we'd like to see done and what should the Supreme Court do. Now, in the case, remember, from people from Bush's perspective, on that side of the ledger, thought the court had overstepped its boundaries there by declaring that action. And who's right? You know, in some ways, that goes to the larger question as to whether the Supreme Court should have the authority to kind of make those decisions. And that's a long debate. I think we're history. just get, getting away. The point I'm making is that I think that we're not as safe as you think we are. But I don't think we're as much danger as you think we are. I hope, I hope you're <laughs> right. Now I'm going to insert myself to redirect. I think John Devote may have had something to say, and maybe somebody behind me did. Um, so let's get those voices in. And then there's actually a question that I wanted. I think somebody commented over here about uh, you know uh, engaging Trump supporters, and I'm curious uh, to 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 know exactly like why they support him. But if we can get to that, fine. But to John, because I know he had his hand up. And yeah. Behind well, him. this is John. I was going to say that this is uh, basically a white nativism that's been around before. Oh, you mentioned yeah. Ryan. You, may, you mentioned uh, Wallace. The reason I'm a little bit more hopeful than Evan is over here is those guys lost. Uh, and I'm hoping the same thing's gonna happen. I'm hoping that Utah's gonna be a battleground state. That's how bad I want them to lose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you look at the, the country right now, you look at the supporters, they're privileged white middle-class males that have lost their jobs, and you have a black guy in power for eight years who have, has been disrespected all eight years, and now you're being threatened with a woman in charge. Uh, this is why, you were asking the question, why now? This is why now. Oh, yeah. Well, this, this is what we haven't gotten to yet, right? And that's the you know, sort of toxic masculinity and the rest of it that's implied, and, and, and sexism and the rest of it. That's that we haven't even touched yet. And that's also a, a factor that is you know, very much an explan powerful explanatory one, I think, as well. There was a, a comment or, or, or question behind me. Yes, uh, I just want to bring this conversation a little bit backward. Uh, this is Jake. Um, so, funny you should mention diplomacy. One of the job, I don't exactly have the presidential job description on my hand, but <laughs> one of his job and character is to be the hat of diplomat of this nation. Um, how should we consider and what will he do during any process of conducting international affairs? I mean, just thinking about it, it, it is scary already. Um, of course, despite the joke that uh, President Obama made 
uh, during the press conference dinner this year, um, from um, his experience, uh, diplomacy with you know Miss Venezuela or mm -hmm. those people from all around the world, and he he quite entertained himself with what he does the best, which is entertaining the public um, via television or any like with uh, reality show. And one thing I'm really concerned is. The supporters of Donald Trump are really confused by the person they support. For example, I, I know people who are Republicans and who willingly and unwillingly support Donald Trump. Sometimes I ask them the question, do you think it's a good idea we build a wall um, on, on the Mexican border? And they will say, ah, Donald Trump just talking about it, he's not going to do it. This is a, this is a paradox. If he tells something that publicly say I'm going to do it, and you think he's not going to do it, so you think he's lying, and here you still you still support him, promoting this political nature within a uh, presidential election, and thinking that when he actually be the president, he will do much better. I mean, is that hopeless? Um, hopelessly just optimistic or? Are we really placing hope in this guy? Because I remember when Donald Trump announced and officially is running for the president as a Republican, I was really shocked because I thought he was running as a joke. I think part of that is like, um, you know, if he's actually going to do it, part of his strategy is shifting the frame of the discussion. Um, you know, like no, no, this is not a strategy that we're talking about. Like when you say something they should do or not. When he makes statements like, I'm going to build a wall, we need to ban all Muslims, and then he sort of like shifts later on down the road, which he's done. I think that's you know shifting the Orwellian window. It's taking the discourse, saying something radically to the right, so now the moderate position ah, moderate So another way, point, Donald Trump is, is utilizing this outrage, this anger. Yeah, of course. But and I mean, really, all great revolutions started with a outcry. However, there are deep meaning values beneath that surface. And what is Donald Trump's be the president? He's not trying to say that radical right position is going to be something that he's binding into. What he's trying to do is cre like create the um, you know the outrage from the left so that the moderate you know Muslim man is you know more viable, the moderate like immigration plan of keeping Mexicans out is more viable, like building a wall, having Mexico pay for it, that's obviously the ideal, but I don't think he's actually like, you know, in a sense trolling. That's not the ideal though. If he were to do that, would he approach Canada in the same exact manner? And he started in 2012 saying that Romney lost his, lost his campaign to Obama due to his immigration policies being maniacal and mean. And now his immigration policies were, were to build a wall, and when we accept them back, there will be a very big, beautiful door for them to walk through. Uh, That's his whole platform. So, so what you just said, in short, sorry, the previous person, in short, is saying you're, you think Donald Trump is actually perfectly utilizing and uh, using this hatred within people and to get them to vote for him. And later on, he will lower the heat, turn down the stove, and be a little more moderate. So in, in another word, as mentioned before, he's being a real, realistic American. Is that, is that the point? I think he would prefer oh. a wall, but I think he will settle for the moderate position that's now slightly more to the right than it was when nobody would dare talk about it. argument about moving the goalposts. So, so yeah, so it is, so, we, so maybe Mexico might not pay for the wall, but now all of a sudden just my draconian increase the border patrol, heightened immigration system, that actually looks as Trump becoming, playing like a normal politician. How many times have we heard in this election cycle that X is finally the moment of Trump being serious? He's going to, he's being a serious politician now. And the stances that he's taking are still hard-lying positions, but because they're not so outrageous, right? Because you don't start with the big lie of, I'm going to ban all Muslims, or we're going to build a giant wall and have Mexico pay for it. That sort of just having these hard-lying positions compared to those fantastical positions, now all of a sudden seem like some reason. Hold on, because we, we, we have time constraints, so we have to go back to, to our host.
So wrap it up. Oh! <laughs> 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 Talk about being caught off guard. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, well, thank you. I mean, this was really very interesting and obviously only the tip of a massive iceberg. Um, you know, again, I would, I would sort of recommend sort of thinking about this much more, right? Um, and and looking not I mean we I guess we sort of looked a little bit more at the man and not so much the movement but um, nonetheless we'll see where this goes so I thank everybody for participating I'd actually like to talk to a few people about uh, some different takes on this but I really appreciate the the input um, and uh, so thank you very much for uh, for participating listening uh, engaging etc I really appreciate it thank you.